You guys talked about your routines, the routines that you have. I had this roommate in college, no joke. Uh, you guys remember peanut butter Captain Crunch, right? They still have it. You couldn't talk to that guy until he ate his peanut butter Captain Crunch. He'd sit at the table and you'd be like, Courtney, he'd be like, all right. And just start eating his Captain Crunch again. That's what his routine was. That's what it looked like. Um, we all have these weird routines. We all have these things we do, these, these ways that we even shower, like, that, as part of our routine. Like, these super, super specific things that happen, right? You guys have them. Yeah. Sundays, you guys got here some way through some sort of routine. You know, we have a routine, too, here on Sundays. We do. 7.30, the van pulls up. We have this van filled with stuff. And so, like, without saying a word, all of us just start taking stuff from the van and bringing it in here. And part of the routine is knowing Jen and Ben. I know Ben just stood up here and talked a lot. But at 7.30, Ben doesn't want to talk to anybody. No one. He's angry. So part of my routine is, like, okay, I'm going to stay away from Ben. You know, like, that's part, of, that's, that's part of my routine. And then Jen's sort of the same way. Jen, our community director, is always, like, uh, you know, she has this look on her face, like, just give me a few minutes. And I do. But then part of my routine also is to uh, not mess with Ashley because Ashley's one of those cheerful, talkative people in the morning. You know them. You know that person. And so part of my routine is, okay, how do I walk in without saying anything to Ben and Jen and not saying anything to Ashley either because she's too happy and cheerful in the morning and walk through that door? That's part of my routine for real. Like it's really the things I think about when I'm creating routine. But then we all get together and we pray and we set chairs up and we do all the things that we have to do so that by 10 a.m. we're ready to go. Right? It's routine. You don't have to talk to each other about this. You don't have to talk about your routines. Because really what's happening when you're creating routines, what's happening, is that there are like these little neural pathways in your brain, these little neural pathways. And these little neural pathways, uh, when you have routines, there are, you know, shortcuts are being created in your brain. These little pathways are being created so that you literally do not have to think. Okay, that's why these pathways are being created. So that these routines become so easy for you that you can think less and act more. Seriously. Little pa- these little neural pathways that are happening in your brain. And so, that's why when our routine gets di- disrupted, that's why we struggle. How many people struggle when your routine gets messed up? Like badly. Like it ruins your day, right? You ran out of your conditioner. You're like, I'm out of my conditioner. My day's ruined. Or worse yet, like the train that you're taking goes two stops past because it's starting to run express, right? And then you got to get on the train going back downtown, and you're like, this is it. It's over. I'm having the worst week ever. <laughs> it's because your routine is being disrupted. Well, that's crazy. Hold on one second. Yeah, your routine's being disrupted. It means that, that, that your brain, which has that neural pathway, that little shortcut, is actually changing. Your brain is actually making, like, new little pathways because your routine's been disrupted. Your head literally hurts when your routine gets disrupted, when you get messed with. That's what's happening. How many of us, how many of us have, have, uh, have spiritual routines? Got spiritual routine? A routine that, that you use for, for Christianity? Maybe you uh, pray at certain times every day? You guys do that? Maybe some of you read scripture or read something at a certain time every day. You know, there was a study that came out that said that the most committed of Christian people in New York go to church two and a half times a month. You guys are some of those people. That's impressive. (laughs) Especially on a holiday weekend. That means that you have a certain routine. Okay, there's a routine that happens in the way you go to church and in the way you do different things and the way you pray and the way you read. And then I have to ask you this question. Do you have... A routine of thought. Routine of thought. 
spiritual thought. Maybe, uh, you know, for me, like, you know, I have like a routine of spiritual thought. I'll admit it. Like we have this church and this church is a Christian church. We're unapologetically Christian, which means that we absolutely believe that God says, you know what? I want people to know my true character. And God sends Jesus or comes as Jesus. So that's God incarnate here on earth. Jesus is death and resurrection happens. And that provides us grace. That offers us grace. You know, so it's this atonement process. And so I say these things and I've said them for years and years and years. And I believe them. But my brain has created like a little neural pathway that allows me to get there really, really easily. Because it's what I believe. It's a spiritual thought. It's a spiritual routine that I have. That one happens to be a really good one. Then there's other ones. You guys have spiritual routines, spiritual thoughts. Things that you absolutely know. Things that, you, you know, you don't have to think much about. They are there. Some of us are agnostic. Some of us don't know if we believe whether or not there's a God that even exists. That's a spiritual routine. I don't know if I believe God exists. It's really easy for us to say. We don't have to think too much about it. We don't really delve too deep into it. It's just there. You guys have spiritual thoughts, spiritual routines? Got one? We have all these controversial ones that we take sides on, our spiritual thoughts, our spiritual routines. We can go on and on all day about that, right? Different translations, whether or not baptism is a good thing, whether or not gay marriage is a good thing, evolution or creation, oppression. What does God's economy look like? And we could argue back and forth over all these things. They are our spiritual thought routines. We have an idea about this thing. And what happens when our spiritual thought routine gets disrupted? What happens when somebody disagrees with us? What happens when we're given a new perspective? What happens when somebody asks us to think differently? Well, what happens when you run out of your conditioner? It's the same thing. You get upset. You're indignant. You dig in your heels. You are like, you know what? I got to make sure that my routine doesn't get messed up. I don't want my brain to create new neural pathways because it physically hurts. And I don't want to hurt my head anymore. That's the kind of stuff that we do. Oh, but Jesus. Oh, Jesus, ruining everything. Jesus comes along with some parables. We have this, this, this uh, storyline series. For the next five weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus' parables. And, and Jesus comes and he starts talking to a bunch of religious leaders. He comes and starts talking to a bunch of, of um, Pharisees and preachers and people that go to church and people who have these really good spiritual thought routines. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to people who pray quite a bit. He's talking to people who read their Bible faithfully. He's talking to people who have their spiritual routines. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is messing them all up. That's what happens with parables. Parables are really, really interesting things. They happen in really weird ways. And here's what one of my favorite authors, Christian Wyman, says about them. He has this amazing book. It's called My Bright Abyss. Uh, It'll change your life if you can get through it, if. Um, But he says, in the Gospels, Jesus is always talking to the crowds in parables, which he explains to his disciples. The dynamic is odd in a couple ways. Either the parables are obvious and the explanations seem almost patronizing, or they are opaque and the explanations only compound their opacity, or it could be, and I confess to relishing this possibility, that the explanations illustrates Christ's wry sense of humor. In any case, the notable point is just how little these explanations amount to, how completely the ultimate truths of the parables, just like dreams and poems, remain in their own occurrence. Right now, some of you are like, wow. Others of you are like, what? That's what's happening right now. What does this mean? It means these parables are tricky. There's some rules. It means that sometimes the parables that we read mean exactly what we think they mean. Exactly. 
Sometimes it means that the parables that we're reading mean nothing like what they think we mean. Nothing. It means that the parables are going to mean different things to different people. The people hearing the parables heard different things at different times. The parables will always point to what Jesus is doing. Always. It will always they will always point to Jesus' mission on earth or, or what the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is trying to show is. They will always point to that. But ultimately, the ultimate goal of these parables is to disrupt people's spiritual thought routines. That is the ultimate goal of these parables. And guess what we get to do? We get to disrupt our own routines. We're going to disrupt the way we think about Scripture. We're going to disrupt the way that we think about Jesus. So a few ground rules. You guys ready? You guys ready for some ground rules? One, one of you. Okay, thank you, Angela, finally. Somebody's ready. <laughs> All right, ground rule number one, be open to disruption. Be open to getting rid of your spiritual thought routines. All right, number two, remember that what I say up on this stage isn't the be-all, end-all. I have my own idea of what this parable looks like or the parables that we're going to read, what they look like. But now it is up to you to go back and to pray through these parables and to go, God, what are you trying to tell me through this stuff? What I say is just the beginning. It's not the ending. And number three, these parables should do two things to you. They should make you really, really comfortable and they should make you really, really uncomfortable. They should make you feel like, you know what? Jesus Christ is amazing, countercultural. I love that I get to be a part of this church. And then they should make you go, oh, man, Jesus Christ, this guy's asking a lot of me. Like, I don't know what to do. That's how it should make you feel. So that being said, let's start with probably one of the most disturbing parables there is. You guys down? Let's do it. It's this parable of the uh, owner who starts this, this uh, vineyard, basically starts like a winery. And uh, hire some people to work on this winery, and, and it does well. And then all of a sudden, the owner wants the owner's profits, and the people are like, no, and so they kill the messengers. That's basically the gist. But it would help, I think, if we kind of make it uh, modernized, if we modernize it, if we make it uh, about today. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to modernize this a little, all right? So we have this owner, okay? And uh, this owner is an incredible restaurateur and decides that she's going to start a restaurant in, let's say, Gowanus. Okay, up-and-coming neighborhood. Good things happening in Gowanus right now. For those of you who just moved here, you could buy in Gowanus, and it'd be a good thing. Um, and also, this, this, this owner says, I'm going to start a restaurant in Gowanus, and, and the owner hires a, a manager, a chef, a bartender, and a bunch of servers and other people, and says, I want you to create the perfect restaurant. So, you know, manager, chef, bartender, create, like, a great menu, amazing menu. They, they uh, create great drinks. Everybody wants to go there. New York Times names it, like, one of the top ten cheap eats in the city. Important people like Derek Chen are there all the time. And, and it's this place where everybody wants to be. It's this incredible restaurant. And the owner's in Hong Kong because she's, like, working on something else. And so all of a sudden she hears, like, oh, my goodness, that restaurant in Gowanus is already turning a profit. It's already happening. I need to probably go get those profits. I didn't think this was going to happen this fast. So she's like, who's that intern I got from Michigan State? Uh, go send that kid to like go collect the profits. So intern from Michigan State goes, says, hey, the restaurant's going really well. I need to collect the profits from you. And the manager, the chef, the bartender, everybody else says, wait a second, hold on. We are the ones that put this restaurant together. We created the menu, we created the, the drinks, we created the ambiance, our servers are top-notch. We've done this all. Why should we give you any of the profits? Why? 
and Michigan State kids like, come on, I'm just here for the summer. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, uh, no, we're not going to give you the profits. A scuffle ensues. The intern dies. Kind of messed up. Gets back to the owner. The owner hears about this. She's in Hong Kong. She goes, send the COO. Send the CEO. I, I need to get these profits, and we got a real problem on our hands. CEO go, COO goes, same thing, right? They're like, no, we made this restaurant. We created the restaurant. We're the ones that have put everything together. Why should we give you what we have created? Same thing. Scuffle ensues. COO is killed. And at this point, we have to understand what's going on here, okay? We have to understand that these people who run this restaurant, all right, they've already decided They've decided that they know what's best. They've established certain routines. They've established certain thought process. They've established certain things that have allowed them to be successful. And so now, because they've established those things, those routines, these thought processes, they're not really going to change their mind. And so the fact that they're killing people just shows their short-sightedness, that they've established such thought processes and such routines that they're willing to kill people for them. So it doesn't matter when the owner sends her son. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter that, that the son is a visionary and that's incredible and next in line because people are so entrenched and so indignant over somebody trying to disrupt the routine of that restaurant that they're going to kill whoever comes next. So then Jesus stops the parable right there. Jesus goes, what do you think of that? What should we do? And he's talking to all the religious leaders, right? He's talking to all the people who know scripture and who pray and who go to church just like we go to church. And all those people, what do they say? What would you guys say? What should happen? Exactly. Clean house. You know, the owner, she has like ties to every judge and every great lawyer in the city. And within weeks, if she wants to, she can get everybody arrested and then spending the rest of their lives in a jail cell. That's what can happen, okay? And so that's exactly what these these good Christian people, that's exactly what these religious teachers, the ones who pray, the ones who read, they all say, yes, this is actually what's got to happen. She's got to just clean house. She's got to do it. And Jesus says, well, God's the, the owner. I'm the son. The messengers are those people uh, who I've told you about over and over, all the prophets that have come to you saying you're doing this the wrong way, and you, you are the wicked tenants. I feel really, really bad for those Pharisees. I feel really bad for them. They're like me. They are like me. They read scripture like I read scripture. They pray like I pray. They go to church like I go to church. They are honestly reading scripture the way I honestly read scripture. The only problem is they are so stuck with their thought routines that they can't see the Messiah when he's in front of their face. I feel bad for them. Thousands of years. You know, we're not oppressed, right? So we have these different ideas about Christianity, about who God is, about who Jesus is. We're not oppressed. They were oppressed. And for thousands of years, as an oppressed people who are being put into slavery and are losing property and families are dying, thousands of years, 
They've been told and they've read, hey, a Messiah is going to come and this oppression is going to end for us. And it's going to be amazing because there's going to be a king and the king's going to rule the earth and us, the people of Israel, are going to get to rule with that king. It's going to be incredible. And for thousands of years, that's what they've read and prayed about and talked to one another about and convened about. In fact, like um, this mother, the mother of James and John, comes up to Jesus and she goes, since you're the Messiah, can you... um, you know, you mind letting my son sit on your right and your left when you start to rule? First of all, how embarrassing is it that the mom comes and says it? <laughs> but you can understand why. The reason why is because that's what these disciples had been told. And they're growing up. The mom would have read them stories saying the Messiah is going to come to rule. I feel bad for them. The, the, the disciples, they're hanging out with Jesus. And they're sitting there and they're arguing over who's the best. Who's going to be the best? Basically what they're saying is who's going to be vice president when Jesus rules? Who's going to be secretary of state? Who's going to be treasurer? Who's in the cabinet? Which one of us? Because for thousands upon thousands of years in their tradition and their history, they've prayed that, read scripture together, worshiped together, and that has been the expectation. They have a routine of thought. And let's look at the scripture that they read. I mean, seriously, let's take Isaiah, for example. This is just one example of many. For, us to, for unto us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Read that. Read that. You're telling me that you are sitting there, and you're in temple, you're in church or whatever, and this gets thrown up on the screen, or it's read out loud, and you're not thinking that there should be a king that's coming to rule politically? The government will be on his shoulders? Oh, hindsight. <clears throat> we love our hindsight. It's 2020. We get to see this and we go, look at that. It's, it's the coming of Jesus. That's nice. They would have read that and said, we're in slavery. My property's been taken away. I've had family members killed. I'm waiting for a Messiah that's coming to be king. I can't wait for that to happen. A routine of thought and an honest routine of thought. An honest routine of spiritual thought. And then it gets worse. I'm just going to go, this is like a rabbit hole we're going down. Getting a lot worse. You guys were, if you were here last weekend, Jen Wills Fisher did this really great talk on Psalm 118 and about the poetry of the Psalms. And so if you read Psalm 118, and I'll read it for us now, it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Can you imagine sitting around with your family, waiting for this great Messiah to come back, and you read the poetry of the oppressed? This is poetry of hope, and your family's all sitting around, and, and, and everybody's sad, but everybody's like, you know, one day we're going to be ruling this earth. One day there's going to be a Messiah that's going to rule with us. One day we've been the rejected you know, stone, but one day we're going to become the cornerstone. And you're reading this, and it fills you with hope. And then some guy shows up, and some guy goes, the way you've been reading that is dumb. You've been reading that all wrong. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. What would you do if somebody walked in right now? One of my favorite verses, I think I've spoke on it before, Romans eight twenty eight. You guys know it? The Lord does... Does good to, or all the time the Lord does good for those who love him. And I'm preaching on that and it gives me comfort, makes me feel comfortable. And somebody comes through the door and they say, that's wrong. 
That's completely wrong. The way you feel about that is dumb. What would you do? Ben would probably have to get up and walk them out the door. But what if they were like, no, no, you don't understand. You think that God is comforting you that way? God's not working that way. You're thinking the wrong way. That, that passage that's given you so much comfort for so many years, yeah, that, that doesn't mean that at all. In fact, it's going to kill you if you keep thinking that way. I might decide to have that person arrested. We might decide that that's too disruptive. We might decide, well, I wouldn't go that far. But Jesus does. He says, you might decide to kill that person. And that's exactly what they do. Jesus tells these parables to absolutely flatten our spiritual thought routines. To absolutely crush the things that we thought were once true about God, about scripture, about the way we pray, about all of it. So let me ask you this. Is it possible Jesus is still working that way today? Is it possible that Jesus is still working that way today in us? You know, um, I know a few of you are thinking like, no, he's not. And you're thinking, no, he's not because it's Jesus. And, you know, what we believe is that, you know, Jesus died and was resurrected. And because of that resurrection, it is finished, right? And so what we read today uh, is true forever and until the end of time. And I sort of on the surface would say, yeah, you're right. But then I would say as Christians... In the history of Christianity, we have said that our thought processes, our thought routines, um, are always good till the end of time, and yet we've said that slavery is okay in our history. That's what our thought routines have told us. Our thought routines have told us that it's okay to oppress people because it says it in Scripture, and Scripture stands forever. Our thought processes have said it's okay to, to be imperialistic and to take over people and to take over nations because that's what our thought processes have told us, and that's what Scripture says. History, uh, we, we believe the history that says that my mixed ethnicity marriage is not good because that's what scripture says and these are our thought process and we don't want to mess with them. We have gotten it wrong plenty. Is it possible that Jesus is still talking to us the way that he talked to the people who went to church and who were leaders and who did the incredible things and who prayed and who you know, read scripture and who got it all wrong? Is it possible Well, if it's possible, then what does this mean for us? It means we have to change some things. It means we're going to have to change some of the ways we think. It means we're going to have to be open to maybe the way the Spirit is working in our lives. That sounds terrible to me. Here's what uh, happens a lot. A lot of times people will come to me and they'll say, Jonathan, or they'll come to Ben or Jen or just small group leaders or whoever, and they say, you know, I feel like I'm not growing spiritually. I feel like I'm not growing spiritually. I feel like I'm having a hard time getting past this wall. You know, that's what people say to me all the time. And then to that, I will sometimes tell a story from Brothers Karamazov, another book that'll change your life if you can get through it. I haven't gotten through it. But <clears throat> there's this incredible scene that says uh, this woman's talking to this monk. And the, and the woman says, you know what? Sometimes I think about quitting my job and serving the poor and the homeless but then I, I think about what they might say to me and the ingratitude they might have. They might say, this bed is too hard, or these clothes don't fit, or the food is not good. And the monk says, ah, yes, the dreams we have are so much more pleasant than reality. 
It's hard to grow. It's hard to break through the wall. It's hard to get to a place where we could change our spiritual thought routines. But if we are going to grow spiritually, then what we're going to do is just that. So here's the challenge for this week. All right, here's the challenge that I want from you. I want you to go back and I want you to read this again. And I want you to go and I want you to read other parables of Jesus Christ. And I want you to sit down and, and you might have a routine of prayer or a routine of something. And I want you to say, God, speak to me differently God, I repent of thinking one way and having one routine. God, create new neural pathways in my brain so I might see this in a new way. God, how are you talking to me today? How is that happening? Which means you're going to have to take time to do these things. That means church today is just the beginning. It's not the end. You're actually going to have to go out, and that's hard. We work 60 hours a week, plus we're in the dodgeball league. <laughs> then we go and we hang out with our friends. We get home at 1030 and we have 63 things on our to-do list. That means we're going to have to put one or more of those things on there. We're actually going to have to engage. What might we find if we start engaging with Scripture differently? Just that first process of engaging with Scripture differently. What might we find? There's this woman. Her name is uh, Tish Harrison Warren. She led an organization called InterVarsity at Vanderbilt University. It's a religious organization. And last year, I believe, she found out that Vanderbilt would no longer acknowledge them because their leaders believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they said that was religious discrimination. You should, be, you should have leaders who don't believe that. So what was her first reaction? Her first reaction is to fight. Of course her first reaction is to fight. And so she fights Vanderbilt, and she loses. She loses. And not only did her organization lose campus status, but there was, I forget, you know, 20 other organizations, 1,200 students who lost their status as part of a religious organization. You know, that makes me want to dig my heels in. It makes me indignant because it messes with what's really going on. And then Tish Harrison Warren said this. She did something a lot more interesting. She said, you know, my task of moving forward is to resist bitterness, cynicism, and retaliation. I'm not going to demonize the university or the culture. There's a reality that makes everything more complex. We have to forgive and look squarely at places in our own heart that require repentance. In community, we have to develop the craft of being both bold and ironic, aiming at peace, truthful and humble. What does your routine look like? You're ready to change it. You're ready to go on this journey that sees the divine in different ways, maybe in different places than you ever imagined. Is that possible? I'm excited. Let's take a walk through these parables. Pray with me, guys. Father, um, God, we be I believe we believe that you are still speaking to us today. And God, we just pray that uh, we would stop and listen, and that we would really listen, and that we would really say, uh, God, uh, uh, you know, empty us, allow us to create neural pathways. God, just allow us to, um, to hear you differently. Lord, we repent of um, the filling of our time, of not taking time for you, and we ask that you would change our routines in this process. Pray all this in your name. Amen.